Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell, and today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review 2005's Neil Gaiman penned fantasy epic Mirror Mask. It's Gaiman. I always say that. I have talked about the man <laughs> on love-hate relationship extensively. I think about I think about him on a daily basis, and I always forget it is Neil Gaiman. It is Neil Gaiman. When we have talked about Sandman, it is Neil Gaiman. When we've talked about Neverwhere, it's Neil Gaiman. We've talked about this man so often, it is still Neil Gaiman. And this won't be the last time I ever say his last name incorrectly. <laughs> I'm sure it's not. So now I'm I'm terrified to get this wrong, but you know, as much as people want to associate this with Neil Gaiman, it is directed by his uh artist partner dave mckean and i don't know now not don mckean yeah don mckean dave mckean i'm gonna assume it's dave mckean and just go confidently in that <laughs> well you are a tall white man with hair you can do anything exactly but uh for those of you who skipped the movie um I don't know why I'm bringing this up right now. That was not a smooth segue. But it's it's the segue we needed, so I'm fine with it. <laughs> In case you skip the movie, Mirror Mask follows Helena, a 15-year-old circus performer. In the movie, Helena struggles through an alternate fantasy reality to find the fabled Mirror Mask in order to save the kingdom and her mother and get home. Mm-hmm. And so, like... That is a description of what happens, but in case you skipped the movie, I don't think it can be overstated enough that this is Alice in Wonderland meets Labyrinth meets Wizard of Oz with a healthy sprinkling of The Hobbit all shaken together, written by... Probably, I would say, the greatest fantasy author of the modern era. And directed by one of the most brilliant artists I've ever met. Ever met? I've ever seen. No, I've not met him. Oh. (laughs) I was about to be wickedly impressed. Oh, you would know if I had met Dave McKean. (laughs) Um, Dave McKean can spit in my mouth. His art is... So lovely. So much so that, like, I saw it on the cover of your Sandman comics that I borrowed. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, this is Dave McKean. This is Dave McKean. How is Dave McKean associated with this? Which doesn't at all surprise me because Neil Gaiman picks, like, the five people he likes and then sticks with them. Yeah, and, and that is the biggest mark of quality you could want. But yeah, anybody who has read, like the modern copies of the Sandman, um, that art style, that crazy, bizarre, like just dreamlike art. That is Dave McKean. He also illustrated a very famous Batman comic called Arkham, a serious house on serious earth. 
Um, and the man is just brilliant and apparently has directed a ton of movies. And also, I really hope you got it. But just now, for the first time, without any warning, I have sent you a picture of what this man looks like. And damn. Oh, okay. I, I got that text and I was like, <laughs> why, friend? Because um, oh. he, he looks like... Oh. It's the jacket more oh, than no. anything, but he looks like a really uh, attractive man you would find in an S&M club. He looks like a bouncer. Yeah. A little bit. Like a white, like a white man bouncer. Mm-hmm. But he's not a bouncer. He is an illustrator, director. He's, he, I, I didn't know he directed Mirror Mask. And in looking at it, I found... Um, two other movies one of which I sent you just off the cover of it alone and was like oh we need to watch this we need to see this thing Uh, (laughs) lovely I I am adding him to the uh, short list of directors who it's like yeah they put my butt in a seat well and it's so interesting because like because I've read Sandman there were so many things, and because I've read a lot of Gaiman work, there were so many things that I was like, oh, this is a Gaiman thing. This yes. is a Gaiman thing. But then there were also things that I was like, is this Gaiman or is this McKean? Porahempolo, the fish. There are fish everywhere in this movie. And I was like, that could be Gaiman and Sandman, but it could also be McKean and Sandman. So... Well- eh. Well, that's the big thing. And like the, the fish that come up in Sandman, um, they come up in the actual comic and McKean just did like the special cover art. So I think that's a game. Oh, okay. But yeah. like looking at the cover of, uh, look, not, maybe, maybe not the cover of the movie, but like every last scrap of art in the movie, because art is incredibly important to Helena and it is incredibly like relevant in the confines of the movie. Every illustration you see, all of her sketches, all of her scribbles, that is McKeon style. You know, the other thing to call for for anybody who hasn't read Sandman, if you've seen the book version of Coraline, um, like the original print cover, that is also McKean who designed that. And even in the movie of Coraline, some of that art is Dave McKean as mm-hmm. well. Yep. Um, which I'm glad you brought up Coraline, because if we're going to talk about pet obsessions of these two men, we have alternate reality mothers Mm -hmm. and mothers who have very strong opinions about what their daughters do and what they mean to them. Like mothers who live vicariously through their daughters a little to an unhealthy amount. Right. And mothers who like refuse to let their daughters grow up um because that's that that winds up being like the core villain motivation of the dark queen and that's also you know the other mother in Coraline um wants to keep Coraline as a child forever by you know eating her (laughs) (laughs) you know now's the part where I remember Coraline is the other episode that we did but will never be uh-huh. released because we were still like getting our sea legs. <laughs> yeah, we were we were wee babes. Mm-hmm. A whole forty like five episodes ago because that was I think the first recording we had ever done. 
Yes, it was that and Hocus Pocus. Yep. And then we got Totoro, and I thought you had rigged the crypt. And I do not rig the crypt. The crypt is just kind and lovely and generous. <laughs> and magic. Speaking of magic. Speaking of magic. This movie is so... In in every sense of the way, it's, it's, it's so interesting because the biggest thing is like, almost before I would call it beautiful, I would call it cacophonous. Oh, interesting. Tell me more. But it's a beautiful cacophony. Like, you know, we see it in the uh, the opening scenes when it is the circus. And especially there is like a quick little montage when Helena is, uh, she gets out of the trailer and is like ready to go perform where it's just, it's just an editing assault on the senses and like, you see her head, but the perspective is that her head fills up the length of the circus tent and like she's moving within the shot and it's pictures within pictures. And it is very like, whoa, okay. Um, they do the same exact thing when she at first falls asleep and has like before she's in the mirror mask alternate world, like she has like a dream and it's presented with all of the fast paced, zero context, like bits and pieces and glimpses of a dream. And it is overwhelming, but it is all Mm. very enjoyable. It's, it's like, you know what? It's like a roller coaster. It's like going on a roller coaster you've never been on for the first time and everything is going so fast and you have no way of paying attention to most of the whatever that the theme park ride designer put around the roller coaster for you to look at. You're too busy just like feeling the thrills, but you enjoy it. All right. What is it? It's a secret. Well, what is it? It's a secret. Please just tell me. Look, an idiot. Where? You enjoy it. I hate roller coasters, so, you know. <laughs> Fair enough. But you enjoyed this movie, and I'm assuming you enjoy the editing I'm I'm uh, describing. Yes. No, I, I do, and I think that's a really apt metaphor because there's a reason I've seen this movie so many times because every time I see it, there's something else to notice. Mm-hmm. Um. And I think this is a really nice commentary on Gaiman's work. And I think there are a lot of things to notice if you're a Gaiman fan. But even if you're not, there's a lot of really lovely mythos to follow, too. Andy, you said it reminds you kind of of The Hobbit or of Alice in Wonderland or... I think the big Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yeah, and I think the big one, like the one movie I would want to compare this to thematically and like these two would make a great double feature really is Labyrinth, which Interesting. We have not watched on the show, but is certainly on the list and I think between the two of us we've seen it maybe 50 times. But like it's important to note I think part of that is because this also has Henson fingerprints on it. Um Lisa Henson, who was either Jim Henson's wife or daughter, I'm not sure, um, was the producer. And they make a big point, even in the trailer, like from the creators of Labyrinth. So everything I'm saying, I part of me is kind of like, yeah, doy. But like 
magical, fantastical, charming worlds where a young girl randomly finds herself on a quest and overcoming the darkness, which it's debatable if the darkness is even evil or if it's just the opposite and just doing its thing and running into just like all of these different memorable one scene characters who are all fully fleshed out while at the same time, like coming up with a band of erstwhile companions. Oh, and by the way, the whole thing might be a dream because everything you see in the movie, you also see scattered on her bedroom walls. And I think that's what kind of makes the movie work is that like, yes, you're in this alternate reality, but also is the alternate reality just a dream? Like so much else of Gaiman. The other thing that really um, the, the dream aspect really sells is this came out in 2005 and like, it's not that CGI was necessarily bad in 2005. It certainly wasn't great. And on top of the technology being great, Mirror Mask had a relatively small $4 million budget for the entirety of the movie. So it was like, okay, even if we could afford the good CGI, we're not going to. We're going to do our best CGI. And you had told me, because you watched this beforehand, you were like, I super don't know if you're going to like it, friend, who really gets hung up on visuals and like if good visuals can save a bad movie, what will bad visuals do to a good movie? The visuals didn't bother me very much at all because it was so apparent that this is dreamscape Mm. and dreamscape can look like whatever. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'm glad that it didn't throw you. I will say you probably have a higher tolerance for things that would normally throw you. Whereas I'm like, oh, that didn't have these five things that I love. I hate it as a film. That's very fair. And like, you know, I I, I want to go ahead and say I don't think it's a perfect movie, but it is a a charming movie. And and, and we'll touch a bit on the imperfections, you know, as we talk. Um, I will say. Uh, Stephanie Leonidas, who is Helena, she is like charming to the point where I'm sitting here remembering um, Jess Wexler from Teeth and being like, where is your career? Stephanie Leonidas, where is your film career? Because you are like adorable and brave and vulnerable and multifaceted and able to be like a child as well as a growing young woman. Like just, she does a phenomenal job and she is like more than, more than most heroines who find themselves in these situations. Like, like Dorothy fine. Dorothy is fine and sweet. Alice is debatably a little just not understanding what's even going on. Um, Sarah from the labyrinth is, you know, rewatching that as an adult, kind of like a totally unreasonable, unsympathetic character, (laughs) but Helena was delightful. 
That's one of the things that I so appreciate about this movie, and I think you hit it on the head, is that she's allowed to be a child, but she is still very much, like, struggling with that with her adolescence. Like, there is definitely a line in here that you could read so much deeper is when Helena sees the dark princess in her room and she's, as Helena would put it, snogging a boy And she says, stop that. He's horrible. You're horrible. And it's unclear if she thinks the boy is actually unattractive or if she's just like, oh, my God, stop. Why are you being why? Oh, God, that's so gross. Why are you doing this right now? Right. And so, like, there is the twist of the film is that the missing dark princess in the dream world has crossed realities because of the, with the mirror mask and has body swapped or not body swapped, but just happens to look identical to Helena. But that is, that is a twist and it's presented late in the movie. And the bits you're talking about where like Helena will look into a window and see her bedroom and see a girl who looks like her, but is like, dressing like a goth punk kid and snogging boys and smoking cigarettes and destroying her artwork before the twist you you very much read that as helena is having these out-of-body experiences observing herself and like the helena in a dream is actually like the childlike innocence sense of wonder that is stuck in its own imagination mm-hmm. as the real girl is like growing up and lashing out and being uh, unfortunate in all the ways a teenager can be unfortunate. And that is a hundred percent how I read it. No, I think that I was just going to say, I think that's such an apt reading because I I had never thought that before, and this is one of my favorite movies, has been for years, <laughs> and I had never thought about that, but the more and more I think about it, I'm thinking about literary theory having, like, there's a literary theory called uh, Lacanian theory that has to do with, like, mirrors and observing the self. Mm-hmm. Um, and the reason I bring it up, I'm not just trying to toot my own horn and sound smart, but the reason I bring it up is that it talks about, in Lacanian theory, it talks about how when you look in a mirror, you separate from yourself. Mm. Like you can see the person in the mirror and you're like, oh, wait, no, that's not me. It is a mirror representation of me, but here I am in my physical form. And they even touch on that in the movie. I'm trying to remember what the exact line is, but Helena and Valentine have the conversation while they're looking in a mirror and, or, or, you know, Helena talks about how, like, I look in the mirror and I see someone who isn't me. And Valentine's like, yeah, me too. It's my reflection. It's not me. I look into the window and it's, and I see me, but it's not me. Me too. When I look through a window, it's not me either. So, yeah. The ones that, or I think he says, the ones that I see myself in are called a mirror. But it still, like, deals with that idea of reflection versus separation right right so you know i'm happy to help give you a new take on something i think that's always really fun because i I had never seen this before i i had heard about it and especially like 
over the course of our friendship, that was a movie that like you and I had always talked about. And it was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm definitely gonna have to see mirror mask at some point, but this was the actual first viewing for me. <laughs> and I am so bad. I am so bummed. I wasn't physically there with you to watch you watch <laughs> it. It's fair. It was definitely an experience. I will say you would have seen me. Um, you would have seen me huddled with my knees up and my computer, like, resting there so that I could hear it better. This movie had to have been easier to find when I put it on the list, but that was 43 (laughs) episodes ago. (laughs) And of course... Because it's now impossible to find. And of course, last recording, we were very bad and neither of us remembered to, like, check that until it was time to watch the movie because we had to do a recording pretty soon. And so, yeah, Uh I, I... the, the movie is available on iTunes if you're one of the five people that are doing iTunes. Um, <laughs> and if you uh, view the movie through extracurricular means, the game in estate is doing fine. And I hope the McKean estate is as well. I'm sure it is. Although if you look at Dave McKean's website, it doesn't look like it is because good Lord, Dave McKean, if you need a website redesign, call your girl. Like I'll help you out. I'll hook you up. But your website is not mobile responsive and it bothers. Oh no. Oh, it's, it's bad. Andy. (laughs) Well, Dave McKean, if you're listening, I very much enjoy your work and I don't, know if i can contribute in any way but if you need like somebody to come help on your next film for the parts of it that aren't cerebral and brilliant art uh i volunteer (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's the thing like he could call me and be like hi i heard that you are giving my (laughs) website work and i would be like yes please (sighs) the charm no, no, that's actually a chicken. The charm. I understand this must be quite painful for you, but really, it is a chicken. Okay, try to tell him. So I want to talk a little bit about, like, the antagonism in okay. the movie. And, and first of all, I've got a question. Have you ever seen a movie called Little Nemo? It's an animated children's movie. I have not. I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. So Little Nemo, ironically, is a movie that I saw at the appropriate age. It's meant for like five-year-olds, and I saw it when I was like a five-year-old. And that, like, ironically, that is the movie that, like, deeply terrified me and, like, nestled deep in my mind and I forgot about it until the moment when Valentine's compatriot is like attacked by the shadowy black ooze and instantly like it consumes him and he dies because there is an evil black sentient ooze thing in little Nemo that works just like that. And so that, that moment kind of happens as a jump scare and it was a especially effective jump scare for me because it like shot a bunch of child fear about a completely different movie that I completely like processed and forgotten about into my brain in that moment. Interesting. Cause you know that now that you're commenting on this, you know what it reminds me of? Hmm. 
is the um, oil in Fern Gully. Sure. terrified me when I was little. Yeah, there's something probably deeply huh. instinctual. Yeah. But certainly... Interesting. Certainly it's reinforced as evil in all of our childhood movies that the thick black oozy stuff is bad. <laughs> Interesting. Well, like I said before, this movie capitalizes on a lot of archetype Mm -hmm. which is why we can so obviously connect it to other works because it it like a lot of gaming things are like hey here are the five things that light up the human psyche when they want to have a story told to them right and we're going to talk about all of them and we're going to touch on all of them because neil gaiman is a master storyteller yeah more than anything, the man knows how to tell a compelling story. Mm-hmm. To completely sidetrack away from talking about the bad guys, one of the ways that really works is in the first real-life circus scene. We've got Helena, we've got Joanne, and we've got her dad. And it it does a really good job of being like, here are the big three. Here's how you care about them. Here's why you care about them. Here's TV's Rob Brydon, who I recognize from a game show. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it does a really good job, even while the editing is crazy and the pacing is super bad. uh, Or not not bad, but like fast. It does a Mm -hmm. good job of cliff noting, care about these people. The only thing I would have changed is in that circus bit, you see her, you see Helena's dad, like announce somebody who's a juggler and it's actually, you know, her mom, but it's not really well established. That's her mom. And when the juggler leaves the stage, he passionately kisses her and goes, I love you. And so I was so ready for like the deep seated point of the movie to be her dealing with her dad's infidelity when that is Mm -hmm. not a factor at all. The man is an incredibly loving husband who needs to like give his wife a deep, passionate kiss the instant she comes off, uh, off stage. Yeah. Um, I think that was maybe what I, I was thinking back, trying to think back to the first time I saw this and I'm thinking, that might have been what I thought too. And it's interesting because she's not even a juggler. He's saying like coming to the stage are these jugglers and that's him and his daughter. Oh, that's right. No. Yeah. She, she's the, uh, the wire act. She's the, 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 uh, God, what's it called? She, she trapeze. All of that to say, um, back into talking about like the antagonism, speaking of the mom, Mm-hmm. The movie does that archetypal thing again, and this helped reinforce the idea that it was dream state where Helena's mom is both the ailing good queen and at the same time, the evil queen, the dark queen. And that was really interesting because it like it juxtaposed the full and complex relationship that Helena has with her mom where like they can get into a fight 
outside of the trailer and she can like be really upset with her mom and think that she's super like controlling but at the same time she loves her mom she doesn't want anything to happen to her she her mom is a good figure and force in her life but then her dad only shows up on the good side and i was trying to like chew on what that meant the fact that there was no dark counterpart of her of her dad when there are other characters and i'm not entirely sure if there's any there there or if they only had rob bryden for like two days and so they had to pick and choose i mean you can put there there because like if you're gonna be comparative about it you could say Oh, well, if you examine Neil Gaiman's Coraline's text, and if we're looking at the two texts next to each other, just like there is no dark, there's no dark king, mm-hmm. when you observe the other father, he's very much on Coraline's side and doesn't want to cause her harm. That's true. So what is the archetypal thing about... Is it as simple is it as simple as daughters versus mothers? And in that dynamic, at least most of the time, father is on both sides at the same time, but not really against either. Maybe. Maybe. I don't maybe know. That, maybe that's the argument Gaiman's trying to make, but <sighs> also um, eh. <laughs> Fair enough. We could, I could sit and project onto this for hours because it's so archetypal. Yeah. Ah, but I am the queen of evil, and I must warn you, you cannot escape my cunning use of black magic markers. But I agree with your point that there isn't really a clear antagonist here. Like, the Dark Queen is the closest we get, but... Really, it's just more situational. It is to a point. I I was really ready and really into the idea that there is no bad force. And, And a lot of that is reinforced. They never call her the evil queen. They always call her the dark queen. Um, you know, I said evil queen earlier and that was, that was me misspeaking, the dark queen and the shadows and like they don't interact well with the light but there's nothing necessarily antagonistic you see other creatures like the the war council and the porcupine alligator face uh manservant guy and all of them seem befuddled and like kind of silly and no one's really evil And I really want to say that the Dark Queen isn't really evil, but they kind of shoehorn in this character trait of being incredibly overbearing and downright refusing to let her daughter grow up or to be anything Mm -hmm. other than the pretty little pet that sits by my lap and I can talk at. Mm-hmm. And that is kind of ungamony. Like certainly there are evil creatures in in Gaiman, but just as often it's like it's not necessarily evil. It's just different and working under its own system. So 
I really want to agree with that point, and I think it just falls short, and I almost wonder if a producer was like, no, we need to have a boss fight, so we need to have mm. the evil queen turn into a giant shadow monster face. Yeah, which... Also, if we're going to talk about the points where if I had seen it at a different part in my life, that would be where it loses me. Yeah. The giant sunflower star sun head floating in the sky. That's where the movie loses me. <laughs> like on the on a rewatch, I was like, okay, this is a bit much. I mean, I very much just saw it as like, yes, okay, you are, you have reached your peak dark evil form but then it's just kind of like the then the movie kind of goes oh we tricked you dark queen isn't actually the boss fight the dark princess is which is Mm -hmm. fine i have no problem with that um what is slightly more problematic is i watched this last night and i could not actually tell you how the dark princess is resolved slash defeated the dark princess is resolved backslash defeated by uh helena putting on the mirror mask and that kind of magically sucks her back to where she needs to be and switches places again and that's when she ends up on the balcony or the patio or whatever that is it's very unclear roof i guess this yeah this like they they have a ceiling above them it is this uncordoned off like like tenement balcony in brighton it's very dangerous yeah and she's like low-key making art with charcoal like all over this place and i'm like doesn't that wouldn't you get in trouble what's happening what are you doing Right, right. Okay, so yes, now I recall. And, and you know, the screen fades to white and then Helena is shown waking up. And so it does that classic thing of it gives you just enough to make the argument that it was actually a dream, which is... Right. After at least the first viewing, that is my takeaway, is that everything presented truly was a dream. And it's very, it's very Gaben of you have the ability to exit this world. You have the ability to completely stop association. Mm-hmm. And then at the last second, there is a twist that brings you back to that alternate reality. So our twist is that at the very end, we have Valentine attend the circus. Yep. And say, I've always wanted to be in the circus. And Helena recognizes him as this guy from her dream. But is it her dream? Who's to say? Well, and the biggest thing is... um... She makes the line, you'd be a horrible waiter, which the real Valentine you'd think would remember. And he very clearly mm-hmm. like laughs for a second and is in like, wait, what? But, 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 but maybe the trauma, what? maybe the trauma of getting shot into the real world and losing his mask, maybe that like 
made him forget about that, you could make the argument. So thank you for saying the word mask because it reminded me um, to segue into our segment. This didn't age well. (laughs) (laughs) Social justice, one, two, three. I want to be PC. It's just the way to be for me. Um, literally none of the actors are actors of color. So, so there is no racial representation. And I, I don't know if this is better or worse. I'm looking at the cast list and there is one. Oh. So a guy named Lenny Henry. And he is predominantly, it seems, a English voice actor. Um, okay. You remember the incredibly bizarre looking policemen in the mirror in the dream world that were like very spindly and had weird faces and were in no way human. Yes. All of them were voiced by Lenny Henry. So again, I don't know if that makes your point better, worse or changes it at all. When the only actor of color had a couple of lines as a being that is very clearly in no way human. You don't see an actor of color in the movie, for sure. And is a cop. And is a cop. Just problematic for its own reasons. Um, But the reason I talk about masks is that there is an argument that you could read the movie as a commentary on neural divergence mm-hmm. um because there's a concept within neural divergence psychology called masking which is when you like present as you are a person without nor- neural divergence i am play acting quote unquote normalcy the argument is there it's a little shaky but it's there so so you bring it up in the this didn't age well part and is, is the fact that Mirror Mask is maybe making an argument for neurodivergence a bad thing? No, I'm sorry. No, that's that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you look at all the different representations that are left out and or presented, this could be an argument for, eh? Eh? It's not all bad. It has this. But it also breaks the Bechdel test. So there's that. That's more than some movies can say. Yeah, this one does it twice. Oh, good. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's great because Helena and her mother have multiple conversations throughout the movie. Not about boys. Okay, here's here's a question. The Bechdel test counts if it is different characters played by the same actor. I figure it mm. does. I, I figure it does, but in thinking about that... Okay, she does have the conversation with the cat lady. And that is that that conversation breaks the Bechtel test. And then But the cat lady isn't named. Oh, that's true. You're right. Okay. So so to my other point then, you've got Joanne, the good queen, and the bad the dark queen, the light queen and the dark mm-hmm. queen. They are all played mm-hmm. by the same actor who is Gina McKee. Mm-hmm. I would say that go ahead and counts, but that's just an interesting like thing to think about. 
Yeah. But like I said, there are there are certainly movies and movies that we've seen even that don't pass the Bechdel test once. And this one does it three times. Yeah, which is worth noting. Indeed. Uh, real quick, we talked about it a little bit, but do you want to just talk about the other like things that... Like, I watched this movie and I saw several things that were like, that's a gamanism. Oh, that's a gamanism. Oh, that's a gamanism. <laughs> uh, yeah, like the key uh, to the mirror mask box looking like Death Sigil. It looks like Death Sigil. It looks a little like an onk. And this is a deep cut for Sandman nerds. But it also kind of looks like the key to hell. Yup. And so that was just fun. I, I don't think that was intentional in any way other than I think Neil Gaiman likes his keys to look really like dangerous and sharp and archaic. And pokey. <laughs> yep. Um, the idea of an inanimate object having feelings and nobly sacrificing itself. Like, like what's your take on that? The books in this movie are wonderful especially the really useful book i love the really useful book i want a really useful book of my own i think everyone needs a really useful book and i like i think the most affected i was in the entire movie is when helena and valentine are surrounded by the nightmare fuel sphinx cat 3d monsters um and they're like okay what are we gonna do and valentine like to his credit he tries a thing and it instantly doesn't work and they're like okay that was my one thing and the book just goes book pages are tasty but stick stick worse than toffee and valentine's Mm -hmm. like well that okay that's really great that doesn't help us at all and helena just goes no, it's a really brave thing to say because she gets it and then instantly tears out all but one of the really useful books pages. I I love the really useful book. The more I talk about it. <laughs> I love the really useful book. I also really love um, Valentine's Tower. Valentine's Tower is very good. <laughs> and that's another gamanism is that things that would normally be stable, like, you know, a tower... Um, are not stable. So in Coraline, we have a cat who can literally walk between reality dimensions. And then you also, in um, Neverwhere, have markets that move every night. So this night, this market is going to be in this location, but tomorrow night, who knows? And you kind of have to figure out where the market is going to be. Same with this tower. There's just like, oh, well, we got in a fight and it's mad and it won't come back. That's the biggest thing. Like that is the point on top of a point. The idea that my tower and I are not on speaking terms is very fun and interesting. And like, (laughs) it's really clear that this is like, it's really clear how this was the man who brought the TARDIS to life. Um, The other thing I noticed just because they they really I really enjoyed them. I, I consider it a gamanism to just slap two random animals together and call mm. it a day. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's one thing to have the sphinxes, which you know the the cats with wings and human faces. Okay, that's fine. But this man slapped together a gorilla and a pigeon, and then <laughs> made them charming and made them like noble, helpful, good creatures. Mm-hmm. I was just like, oh, good on you, man. 
I mean, you wouldn't think it to look at me, but I'm a very important man. I've got a tower. So, is this called? <laughs> this is so incredibly cult. Like, <laughs> it made this... no money. <laughs> It made no money, which is such a shame because, like, it was already, like, a hedge your bets. We're only going to give you four million, which, I mean, sure is a lot, but it's not a lot when you're making a movie. Mm -hmm. Um, And its total gross was um, less than one. It was, like, 850,000 or something. Mm -hmm. Now, part of that is it kind of got handicapped and was sent straight to home video. And this is the one instance where I, that didn't help the movie probably because 2005 is too late for something to go straight to video and then like have life and success in straight to video world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But it is, it is charming and it is quotable and it is like, you either love it or you have some serious problems with it and you can't make any sense of it. Like, it, it has comedy, it has life, it has purpose, it has a good message. It's got just insane, beautiful visuals, but they are insane visuals. Um, I would say this is cult because the best way I can describe this is this is, lab- this is to Labyrinth as any, like, normal, regular movie. This makes Labyrinth look coherent and normal and almost dull. <laughs> <laughs> Justin, it's a it, it's in it, it's assaulting presentation. You know, I kind of love that. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. I think for me, this is cult, um, just on a personal level because this has been one of those movies that every so often I'll get a hankering for. Like I'll just be like, oh, it's a rainy Saturday in October. I really want to watch Mirror Mask. Mm-hmm. I love this that. is why I this is why this is a movie that I added to the list you had come up with our grand majority of cult movies and I was like and also this one and also this one fair enough yeah I mean because this was truly I remember seeing the trailer for this like probably before some other eclectic movie and being like I'm seven and this looks confusing and then forgetting about it. You were seven so in no. 2005. Okay. Fair enough. I'm 13. Thank you. <laughs> I was going to say, have we been lying about our age, Andrew? I'd be kind of impressive if I could pull that off, but no, no. <laughs> That's quite a difference. No, I'm very glad you put this on the movie. I'm very glad I finally got a chance to see it. I think this this very much probably isn't for everybody, but it is very good for a select kind of people. So in that, um, maybe we can broaden its appeal by assigning it some Oscars. Oh, for sure. Would you like to go first or shall I? I'll go first, just because I've, I've kind of been talking around it um, the entire episode, but I would give Mirror Mask the Oscar for best interpretation of how dreams work. Because mm. it is just, it is so much like, as soon as she is in the world, it is just, 
we're going on a thing and now we're here and this visual cuts together weird and you are a series of shapes that sounds like Stephen Fry and you are two giants that are floating and all of this is normal and I'm not going to question any of this or have a panic attack. I'm just going to keep going and all of a sudden now we're here and now we're here and this wasn't a thing a moment ago but now it is. And in that editing, in that like just this, this elaborate visual presentation that I've talked so much about, like that is what my dreams look like. I wake up in the morning and I can only remember chunks and bits and pieces like that. And I felt very like you get it, Dave McKean. Holy crap. I've not seen anybody like show what a dream looks like better than this movie. I love that. I especially love when our Oscars kind of go hand in hand, which is the case (laughs) for this movie. My Oscar is for most recognizable handwriting to Dave McKean. Handwriting. Interesting. Okay. Because so Dave McKean has this very specific kind of not cursive but very specific kind of script that his fans know well as his. So it's in this movie, anytime they denote time, um, a lot of the art is very obviously his art just because of the way that he adds weights and strokes to his letters and his art. Um, But neither here nor there for the longest, I tried to kind of copy Dave McKean's handwriting style. (laughs) I love that so much. Aw, thanks. Speaking of things we love. Speaking of things we love very much. Kevin Bacon. We love Kevin Bacon. (laughs) What do you have for me? So I was able to get this and I think it was two. Um, I just mentioned a moment ago, Stephen Fry plays the librarian. So he gets a scene where he is a a mouth on a series of disincorporated stones is what I got from it. (laughs) And Stephen Fry is in a movie called a civil action, which is a John Travolta uh, lawyer movie with John Lithgow. And John Lithgow is of course in footloose with Kevin Bacon. Ah, and one of my favorite roles of John Lithgow's. Absolutely. Well, I also was able to get it in, too. Excellent. Okay. By pulling Jason Barry. And Jason Barry was Valentine. Correct. But he was also um, Leonardo DiCaprio's best friend in Titanic. Oh, whoa. Wait, what? Yep. The guy that he's gambling with at the beginning. the, The Italian dude? Uh, yes, no, maybe? Hold on. Hold on. Just because this is going to blow my friggin' mind. Jason Barry Titanic. Yup. No. Yep. Well, he's very clearly... I I don't think he's the guy I'm thinking of. 
which just no. helps my brain not snap in half. But he's absolutely, yeah, he's absolutely in Titanic. Okay, sorry. No, he is... I lied. He is not Leonardo DiCaprio's best friend in Titanic. He is one of the people in the scene where um, Kate does her famous stand-up on All My Toes thing. Yes, okay. Yeah, so he's like one of one of those people that's of the lower classes on the ship. Um well, good for Jason Barry because I'm sure this uh still keeps him <laughs> fed and warm. Oh, with his absolutely. Titanic residuals, yeah. <laughs> so, he was in Titanic, but what we know about Titanic was that Bill Paxton Mhm. Also in Titanic. And Bill Paxton. Oh, uh, yep. As I am well aware by this point. <laughs> was in Apollo 13. Nice. Yay. With Kevin Bacon. <laughs> you know, for a movie that frankly has such a unheard cast... Like, I think it wouldn't be unkind to say that Stephen Fry is a league more famous than anyone else. Yes. I'm very pleased that there were multiple paths to Kevin Bacon. Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've made it really clear this movie is dear to you. Do you have a quote? <laughs> I do. Um, and it's something that I mutter on my br- under my breath all of the time, which is, and I shall slip unnoticed through the darkness, like a dark, unnoticeable, slippy thing. <laughs> That is a very, so the fact that you say this like to yourself, I think really, uh, yeah, that's really appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) And very on brand. Very, very on brand. I will say. (laughs) I'm trying to remember mine. I, I made the mistake of, I wrote down book quote and then I told myself, surely this this line it's something about it's something in the library scene it's something about the magic and wonder of books but i'm scrolling through imdb's credit uh quote like snippets and i can't find it so with that then i am going to just again like my quote is probably that's a very brave thing to say because of the context of the sweet and good very um very good book sacrificing itself the very useful book is maybe my new favorite thing stephanie do you have a reading recommendation for mirror mask you know i do but it's not neil gaiman (laughs) which is not what i was expecting i will say that man has enough money he's fine that's fair he married and divorced a rock star. He's literally fine for money. Yeah. Um, so because Neil Gaiman is fine for money, one of the things I did want to talk about um, is the history of circuses, but that's a, like a whole other rant. So I am going to link in the show notes to articles about circus culture, um, specifically how people have been saying for the past, oh, 20 to 30 years that circuses are dead mm-hmm. and how that's really disrespectful of independent circuses who aren't, 
whose business model isn't surviving around the idea of animal cruelty. So I'm going to link okay. to these in the show notes, but there's a National Geographic article about the death of circuses. And then there's a Smithsonian article that's like, no, circuses aren't dying. That's kind of the point. Circuses evolve. Fascinating. Okay. I think my favorite part about that is the idea that um, the Smithsonian is trying to get into a uh, a literary conflict with National Geographic. <laughs> they fight on Twitter, just like Wendy's and Burger King, and it's great. Do they actually? Because I love that. Yeah. Perfect. Excellent. Okay, I'm totally here for it. Remind me to send you a thread on Twitter that's about, like, all the different literary magazines having crushes on each other. Oh, please. Okay. <laughs> but that's way off the mark. So speaking of things that have crushes on each other, what has a crush on Mirror Mask in our crypt? <laughs> okay, hold on. Are we okay. establishing that that's how that works? Because I'm fine with it. That just really, Our- <laughs> that really uh, causes some problematic things. Our crypt moves at like a very weird frequency where it's like, this could be tied to this, which should be tied to this, which can be tied to this. I'm convinced our crypt has a thing with love triangles. Oh, well, that makes sh- that, that makes complete sense to me. I mean... Yeah. I, I I'm sure uh, at some point we will ask ourselves earnestly our lo- our uh, love triangles cold <laughs> if we haven't already if we haven't already okay let's find out if the next film has a love triangle every episode of cult fiction we take the cult which is currently 297 movies and we run it through a random number generator which I am doing now and the random number that has come up you know you know yeah Andy? you know cult crypt you funny old thing we're gonna go from one uh, psychedelic fantasy adventure to another on the next episode of cult fiction returning to cult fiction is terry gilliam and we will be watching his 19 19- 89 adventure film the adventures of baron munchausen this is up there with um the don quixote movie that um terry gilliam like struggled over and over and over again to play this is another movie that like randomly has people from monty python in it oh i'm gonna hate it (laughs) (laughs) i mean potentially I mean, it's also it's also got Uma Thurman and uh, Jonathan Price. So, I I have not seen this movie. I I don't actually know what we are in for with this one. Oh, fun! That's worked out so well in the past. It's worked out so well. Remind me, did you hate Brazil? <laughs> Remember, I hated it, and then we talked about it, and then I liked it okay. I'll take it. Well, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow us on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. 
But join us next time as we truly uh, venture out into the complete unknown as we watch The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell. <laughs> <laughs>